I don't want people to die. But that's my fundamental underlying. That's why I've been picking up the phone for journalists. That's why I've been doing this for a year is actually I want us all to be safe. And I wouldn't be saying, you know, I wouldn't be getting a vaccine myself. I wouldn't be getting my family vaccinated and I wouldn't be telling others to get vaccinated if I didn't believe that it was safe and effective. And the and the evidence is looking amazing, right? There's the studies that have been done in multiple countries. I mean, it's incredible. So Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. It's a political podcast where we chat about issues affecting Kiwis. Cases of COVID-19 to report in managed isolation in New Zealand. We talk to Kiwis from all sides of the political aisle. What has the government delivered? Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Steve O'Ely, and we hope you enjoy our show. Today's guest on Pod Defend New Zealand needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce her anyway. Susie Wiles is a microbiologist and science communicator specialising in infectious diseases and bioluminescence. She's the head of Auckland Uni's Bioluminescence Superbugs Lab. Most famous for being the pink-haired lady who's communicated about COVID-19 to the general public in New Zealand. She has just been awarded 2021 New Zealander of the Year, recognised for her leadership through the country's COVID-19 response. Firstly, Susie, congrats on New Zealander of the Year. Uh, thank you. <laughs> How does it feel? Yeah, it's it's odd. Um, it's yeah, as I said, when I accepted it, it's sort of it's very weird. <laughs> <laughs> very weird to be one of the public faces of the virus and um, to kind of be rewarded, I guess, for something that's uh, a team effort. But, yeah, um, yeah, it's just and the response has been amazing. So many people have been absolutely wonderful, and then it has just wind wound some people up quite astonishingly. So, <laughs> <laughs> I saw on social media that someone got wound up that you were what wearing laces to the yes. boards. Well, this was lacy bottoms to my trousers. They were just too much. <laughs> so, what were they actually offended by? So I was wearing these trousers that have like lace at the bottom. And so I don't know whether, I don't know what it was that offended them. And it's interesting because I really, um, I really thought long and hard about, you know, wearing something more black tie. Uh, but the the instructions were quite clear that we should wear our version of black tie and feel comfortable. And so I thought I'm just going to wear, you know, a smart version of what I would smartish version of what I would normally wear um and so many people have said it was great that I didn't like I just looked like me um didn't look like I was trying to pretend to be at you know some kind of event like that so I'm glad I'm glad <laughs> the reality is that people are the way they are and, yeah. and people really, really respect you for who you yeah, are so I'm, I'm trying to be authentically me and and that's and that really upsets some people and then others really appreciate it. So I'm just going to keep being me, I guess. <laughs> so most of what I've heard about you was through your articles online and in newspapers. But when I finally heard you speak in person, I noticed that you have a very interesting accent. So I'm curious as to your heritage. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about where you grew up and that sort of thing? So I was born in the UK, in Yorkshire, and then when I was about um, four and a half or something, uh, we moved to South Africa. And then I 
um, was about 15 when we left. So I kind of spent some formative years there. Um, and then we moved back to the UK and I lost my accent, <laughs> my very strong accent. And now I have quite a weird accent, really, because I never picked up the Yorkshire accent of my parents. So my parents and my brother have got quite strong Yorkshire accents. And yeah, I went and, and studied in Scotland and then moved around the UK for a bit and then moved here. So I've got a very strange accent and people are always like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> Most people know you from the COVID stuff where you've given your perspectives, but if people do a bit more research and, and realise that you've got a lot more of a background, can you give people a bit of a background as to your experience prior to COVID-19? Sure. Okay. So I um, did medical microbiology at university um, in Edinburgh, and then I uh, went and did a PhD. So I'm not from an academic kind of family. Um, in fact, I was one of the first people in the family to go to university and then one of the first to do a PhD. And I, I mean, I just loved learning and stuff, right? And absolutely loved infectious diseases. I thought they were absolutely, I still think they're kind of fascinating. So it was about probably halfway through my degree that one of my supervisors said, you know, you should think about doing a PhD. And then it was like, what's a PhD? <laughs> uh, and then I, so I looked around for PhDs and I found one that was about making bacteria glow in the dark to um, basically make pollution sensors. So basically we can engineer bacteria with these genes that fireflies and other glowing creatures use to make light and they only glow when they're alive. So it's a really quick way of telling whether something's dead or alive. So we, uh, so for my PhD, I basically did that for industrial pollution, making all these glowing bacteria and then using them as these biosensors. Um, but through the course of my PhD, realized I really wasn't interested in industrial pollution and environmental microbiology. I really still was fascinated by uh, medical microbiology. But I really loved the whole making stuff glow and doing things with that. So um, when I finished my PhD and started looking for, um, for research jobs, I found one that was about making the bacteria that causes, causes TB glow. And so I kind of this is still 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 in edinburgh so no so i moved from edinburgh to a research institute in oxford to do my phd um and then after that i moved to imperial college london so that was where i worked on um tuberculosis and then while i was doing that i um basically was in this really cool institute that had lots of different you know research going on in different diseases and i grabbed a whole load of different bacteria because tb is really hard to work on it's really slow it's dangerous um, so it wasn't quite for me. So I started um, getting bacteria from other people and engineering them to see like which ones I could make glow. Um, and one of the first ones that worked really well was a bacteria called Citrobacter rodentium, which is basically a bacteria that causes food poisoning in mice, very similar to E. coli. And so I started working on that. And then I basically, um, after a few years, started my own lab, ended up working back on tuberculosis again, but also on other diseases. So I've worked on um, Staph aureus, which is like a hospital superbug. I've worked on group A strep, which causes rheumatic fever. It's a big problem here in New Zealand. Um, yeah, and all sorts of things. And then when I, so after all my kind of uh, training, I guess, and as a postdoc, I then got um, a lectureship at Imperial and started my own lab. And then a few years later, I moved to New Zealand and, um, I've been working on all sorts of things ever since. So I'm quite a, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I've worked on lots of different bacteria. 
at the moment, my lab has got a big antibiotic discovery project going on. Um, I've got a project looking at how bacteria evolve to be more infectious. Yeah, so all, I've kind of do all sorts of things, really. Um, and it's been about 20 years since I finished my PhD. So after doing your PhD, did you start the bioluminescence superbug lab in New Zealand? Well, I guess it sort of started when I became independent. So that independence was kind of about, was was basically while I was at Imperial, so before I moved here. Uh, but the other, so so I have this background in infectious diseases, you know, studying lots of different kinds of ones, mostly bacteria. But I've also had this really long standing interest in communicating science. So um, that started 15 years ago when I won quite a big award for my research. And so that organization basically convinced me to, start being more public about my research and I started doing talks in schools and various things um, and then it really kind of ramped up when I moved to New Zealand and I sort of started blogging and and working with artists and illustrators and things like that um, so I've had you know 10-15 years of also learning how to communicate science and so for the last like maybe um, gosh I mean Actually, going back to about 2010, um, whenever there's been a kind of big microbiology story in New Zealand, I've been one of the people that that journalists will call to ask about it. So, you know, when um, Zika virus was happening, I talked about Zika virus. When it was Ebola, I was talking about Ebola. And so when this happened, I just thought it was the same as before, right? You know, my phone started ringing. Journalists were like, blame this new virus. And then obviously this has been something quite different. So I just never disappeared. I guess I just, <laughs> the journalists just kept caught. There's no doubt that with your background, there's a reason that journalists and stuff asked you, wanted your perspective. Do you know why in particular Why me? you became the COVID expert in a way for New Zealand? Yeah, well, so several reasons. I mean, and I'm not the only one. Obviously, Professor Michael Baker has done a huge amount of media as well. You know, there's been a few of us. So one of the reasons is that I mean, it takes it, you know, speaking to the media as a scientist is not an easy thing, right? You know, we're not, it's not something we're trained to do. You have to understand how they work. You have to understand what it is that they need in order to get their stories. Um, and so this is something that we are not trained to do. I mean, the, there is a, the Science Media Centre do run training courses, but not everybody's been on them. And so, you know, you have to understand how the media cycle works as well you know many times when a journalist calls you you like you they need you now not tomorrow and so you've got to be willing to put your stuff aside and say yes okay I will find out you know find this out for you I will explain this to you and then you have to be able to explain stuff to them in language they can understand and that's those are two things that not every scientist will do um and so you know many of my colleagues at the university you know they, they, I've, I've had instances where I've said, you're the best person for this, please take this call. And then the next day the journalists will go, they never answered the phone or they didn't do this and stuff. So yeah. for me, this is, you know, it, it's, it's really important. And so I'll make the time. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why they keep calling back because they know I'll do it and they know that I'll explain it to them, you know, and, while I know everybody's sick of seeing me, actually, you haven't even, you, you like, the seeing me has been the tip of the iceberg. Actually, you know, a lot of it has just been talking journalists through things and explaining stuff to them. And um, and nobody even sees that that stuff, right? So, but to me, it's really important that the journalists understand it so they can report the, you know, the story properly, I guess. Like, as someone who's become 
one of the faces of COVID. We're at a stage now where we're getting people vaccinated. And most people understand that vaccination is an important part of getting rid of a disease. And I've heard different stats being thrown at me, but the one that I've heard is, and I don't know if this is factually correct at all, but there's a significant percentage of people in New Zealand who don't want to get vaccinated because they don't believe that vaccinations work. I don't know what percentage you've heard yourself, but the percentage that I've heard is that 75% of people will get vaccinated and 25% of people won't get vaccinated. So for people who don't have a science background, can you Give us a basic understanding of what a vaccination is and secondly, why it is so important. Yeah, so first I want to address that statistic because it is true that I think the latest survey showed about 70% of people were like, yeah, hook me up with one of those things, right? Um, and the rest were not. But that doesn't mean that the rest weren't, weren't going to accept a vaccine ever. So we know that there's a real difference between people who are vaccine hesitant and those who are really staunchly not wanting a vaccine. And actually, the people who are staunchly anti-vaccination are quite small in number. Okay. The vast majority of people are hesitant. And that might just be because they've actually got some genuine questions, which you know we haven't properly started addressing yet because we haven't actually properly started rolling out our real you know, vaccination campaign. So I think I'm hopeful that the numbers are going to end up being less than that when, when people do get their questions asked, answered and um, feel like they have more kind of information and are, you know, and are ready. So I'm not hugely concerned about that at the moment. It just shows that we do have a lot of work to do in terms of making sure everybody has the information that they need. Anyway, okay, so what's a vaccine? So basically it's kind of like a superpower, I guess, right? You know, it's a, essentially getting your body to respond to an infectious organism without actually having to have the disease. Um, and there's, in fact, the, you know, I think the astonishing thing about this, um, about this um, pandemic, which has frightened people a little, has been the speed at which the vaccines have been rolled out. And actually what they talk to is not really, corners haven't been cut it just shows how quickly we can actually do this process when money is no object, right? So yeah. normally there's a long, long process with many, many stages, which are generally carried one after the other with big gaps in the middle while everybody tries to find some money. Um, and actually everything's been completely streamlined. So stuff has been rolled out very, very fast. So it's kind of more a, wow, this look what we can achieve when we really put our minds to it rather than, a, oh, my God, that's been done too fast. So I think that's the first thing to say. Um, but anyway, so basically what these vaccines do is we present our body with a small part of the organism. Um, our body then looks at it, recognises that it's not us, and then essentially learns to um, recognise it in the future. And that means if we come across that organism again, uh, we can respond to it more quickly and get rid of it without actually having to have the disease. And it's just it's an, it's a, an amazing, amazing thing that our bodies can do. And, you know, our bodies are encountering organisms all of the time. And so this is not, you know, I know that people are also worried about, oh, well, you know, should you be, should we be doing this kind of thing? But actually, you know, our, our bodies are incredible and we are always seeing things that are not, you know, that are not our body, that are foreign to us and responding to them. Um, and this is just kind of giving your body a head start so that it can, when it sees the organism for real, 
he can go, I recognize this, I know how to fight this, and I'm going to do it really fast. Because normally when you see a microorganism, your body's got this long process it needs to go through. It's got different, um, we've got our immune system, we've got different types of cells, some which respond quite quickly, others which, which take a few weeks to come up, and that's sort of why it takes time to resolve an infection. Um, but when you give it a head start, then you can basically resolve it without actually having to have, you know, any serious symptoms. So they're amazing, amazing life-saving things. And um, I'm, you know, I'm going to be there with my arm out. <laughs> the minute I mean, I was literally watching the news earlier tonight and I think there's been about 90,000 doses being given and there's been, I can't remember the exact number of people that have had adverse reactions, but there's been three, what they would class as, serious adverse reactions to the vaccine mm. and none of those three needed to be hospitalized as a result of the vaccine i guess the concern for people that don't necessarily have a science background is having a vaccine could result in really bad effects yeah what would you say to people in that position with having a science background myself i understand that there's a very small percentage that can have adverse Reactions yeah. and in most of those cases, it's just I guess you'd class it as a mild anaphylaxis. But what would you say to people concerned about the small chance that they have a bad reaction to the vaccine? Yeah, so so there's also so it's tricky, right? Because there are actually there's lots of vaccines being rolled out overseas, and in New Zealand, we're going to get one in particular, the Pfizer vaccine. Um, yes. And what um, what it was noticed quite early on is that so the Pfizer vaccine is basically it's like the instructions for making a small part of the virus wrapped in a kind of fatty coat. And one of those fats is something that is present in some other medicines. And what has been noticed in the past is some people, if they've had those medicines, they can actually develop an immune response to that, that particular um, fat. Uh, and so if they get it again, they can end up having this allergic reaction. And so actually just knowing, you know, what people, what drugs people lean on, um, watching them for, you know, 20 minutes, is, which is when, if you're going to have one of those um, allergic reactions, that's normally when it happens. Um, so watching people for that time, and then if they do develop an allergic reaction, they're able to um, give them something to counter that. So that's something that, you know, that's why you have to stand and hang around <laughs> and, and be watched for a little bit. It's just watching for those things that are very, very, very rare that happen, but do happen in a small number of people if they've been taking other drugs that have these um, fats in them. Um, there are other vaccines so um, that have other effects. Um, so, for example, at the moment, there's quite a lot of um, concern about the AstraZeneca vaccine yes. uh, and um, causing blood clots uh, seems to be in women between kind of 20 and 40. And obviously the way the vaccines are being rolled out around around the world, you know, there's been a let's do all the older people first and then they're sort of, you know, moving down. And so when you're just delivering something to millions and millions of people, you will start to see the things that happen very rarely. So the AstraZeneca one and the blood clots is something that's being looked at really closely. Um, it looks like, so it does look like it's a thing. It looks like... The chances are quite low, isn't it? Low, yeah. And they're actually, I think they're either comparable or lower than the chances of having blood clots if you're put on the con contraceptive pill. So that's a risk that many women would take anyway, <laughs> you know, um, 
Uh, and so it's sort of, uh, yeah, it's kind of on a par with that. But it's really, really important that we understand that because that might mean actually for women who are 20 to 40, that's not the best vaccine to have, right? There might be a better vaccine that would be would be good for them. That's not the vaccine we are rolling out here in New Zealand. So that's not an issue um, for us here. In fact, the vaccine that we're getting, as I said, there's been very little actually in the in the terms of um, um, bad effects. There's been these uh, initial ones to do with this fatty coat, but um not not much else um the there's also one of the one of the slight problems with vaccinating this many people um is that you know stuff happens to people every day right some people have heart attacks yes, or some exactly, people you know yeah. and sometimes these things will just happen by coincidence so that's also why it's really really important around the world that there are registers to make sure that we're following all of those events and then to look Actually, are they just chance or did they actually have anything to do with the vaccine? So that's also been set up here. People, you know, all of that will be monitored, having a look at what, you know, what impacts did, did it have. For the vast majority of people, the thing that you can expect is to have a sore arm, um, maybe a little bit of a fever. You know, these are signs that your body is doing its job. They're signs that your body is mounting an immune response, which is a good thing. Um, that's not to say that people should be worried if nothing happens, <laughs> because that doesn't mean your body's not necessarily doing anything at all. It just might be that you're somebody who gets a sore arm, that's because you've got a, you know, super duper active immune response. So, but, you know, these things are all important to, to, to monitor, to be able to say, actually, are there different ways we can deliver the vaccine? No, maybe people need to have a bit of paracetamol afterwards and, and all of these kinds of things will, will help. Yeah, something that we have to address when we're talking about vaccines. It's something that I don't really want to have to talk about, but unfortunately, given the history with vaccines, we have to. There is the perceived idea that getting a vaccination the worst thing the worst thing about fake information about vaccines is repeating it okay vaccines are actually incredibly safe and there have been lots of fraudulent studies that tried to show that they were related to other things and they just they're not true and so it's best not to mention them at all Okay, so I won't say the exact word, but what I will say <laughs> to people that have their scepticism about vaccines is that there is a disease associated that has been There's associated no with. <laughs> <laughs> there is a disease that. So bear in mind, there's there's millions of doctors around the world, and there is one doctor that drew an association between vaccines and a disease starting with well, A. Man, I mean, he faked his science. It's really it's a, it's a shocking story of a man who broke his oath as a doctor, faked his research, paid children to give blood at birthday parties, you know, I mean, dis disregarded medical records to make up a story and has created this horrendous problem that people now think, you know, vaccines are bad for you. So I will not say his name and I will because <laughs> <laughs> it's wrong. <laughs> We're not going to repeat it. On that topic, we do have to talk about the misinformation in regards to vaccines. It's a very challenging topic. Naturally, being a scientist and anyone related to the medical industry is that you're going to have an opinion regarding vaccines. What would be your advice to people in general about getting vaccinated as to saying, look, it's safe and the chances are things are going to be okay? The thing that people need to learn about is what they call the disinformation dozen. 
So a really, really interesting study was done quite recently where they um, took a sample of um, anti-vaccine posts on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, 800,000 of them, uh, that were basically completely untrue. Uh, and then they looked at where they came from and they found 12 accounts could account for about 70% of those posts. So they're basically this fake information is being created by a very small number of accounts um, and it's designed in such a way to frighten people um, and people are much more likely to share stuff when it's frightening, right, because they want to warn their friends and family. Yeah. And so they were basically pushing, making this fake information and then pushing it out and, you know, two-thirds of people, uh, two-thirds of the information was just all this basically fake stuff. So you have to remember that when you hear stuff, or when you see stuff online about vaccines that makes you frightened, that says all these things about them that makes you frightened, it's highly likely that they're being pushed by people with a different agenda that you maybe don't know about. And some of these accounts are accounts that um, sell stuff. They sell products that say, you know, we can, you don't need to be vaccinated, just take our pills and you'll be fine. Others, I'm not sure what their, what their um, agenda is, but it's, but they obviously have some agenda. So, so that's a really important thing to remember, remember is that there are people out there who are creating fake information designed to scare you. Yeah. And it's not clear why they want to scare you other than to try to maybe sell you something. Uh, but they're definitely pushing, you know, they, they're trying to push you away from vaccines for their own purposes and not for your safety. Um, and it's really important to understand how social media works, right? You know, the algorithms of platforms are designed, you know, if you click on a on a on a video, you know, they're designed to show you more of that kind of stuff. So you can end up having a completely um the completely wrong idea about a topic. And you feel like you've researched it because you've looked online, but actually you've just been sent, you know, or given fake information. And it can look so convincing. You know, I've seen the videos they make, they're really high production values. They've got all these people calling themselves doctors and scientists. So it's really, really, really hard. I, you know, there's very little we can do other can say, well, we can give you the evidence. We can show you the studies and we just have to tell you that other people are lying. And that's a really hard thing because then people will say, well, maybe you're lying, right? So, I, I, again, I think this comes down to people's values, right? So yeah. I am not trying to sell you anything. I don't want people to die. But that's my fundamental underlying. That's why I've been picking up the phone for journalists. That's why I've been doing this for a year is actually I want us all to be safe. And I wouldn't be saying, you know, I wouldn't be getting a vaccine myself. I wouldn't be getting my family vaccinated and I wouldn't be telling others to get vaccinated if I didn't believe that it was safe and effective. And the and the evidence is looking amazing, right? There's the studies that are being done in multiple countries. I mean, it's incredible. So that's all I can say really is that, you know, you just have to be aware of how social media works and you have to be aware that there are people out there who are pushing an agenda and that agenda is killing people. Yeah, and I suspect you probably watched the Social Dilemma. I did documentary. <laughs> yes, and for those people who haven't watched it, is one of the things from the Social Dilemma is that fake information spreads or conspiracies spread six times faster than yep. real information. So when you go onto YouTube and you click on conspiracy theory, the nature of it is even if you don't believe it, is it's quite a contagious thing. Yeah, And it's more likely to spread than real information. So just because it's something on YouTube doesn't mean it's actually real. Yeah. And it can be real. I mean, it just, I, oh, it's so hard. 
when you, uh, the, the thing that really upsets me as well is that we have people, you know, who, I mean, doctors and scientists who have kind of sold out, right? I mean, I don't know what they're getting out of it, but the messages they're spreading are killing people. And I just, I've, I can't, I don't understand how that's happened, but that, you know, that has happened and that just makes it so difficult because you can't tell from somebody's credentials whether, you know, whether you can trust them or not. It's very, very difficult. And the problem is with someone with the credentials of a doctor, such as the guy who's Name we claimed that vaccines <laughs> don't work, but he who should not be named, is that you've got to bear in mind that we've got 7 billion people on the planet and I don't know the exact stats, but I'd say that there's probably close to a million doctors on the planet. And so one in a million doctors who says that vaccines don't work is unlikely to be a reflection of the entire population yeah. of doctors. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it and it is very hard, right, because conspiracies are also really, um, they're compelling, you know. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think, I think people like, somehow, there's something quite comforting with everything kind of being rolled up as a, oh, yes, you know, these people are out to get us or they're, you know, they're just doing it for money and stuff. I mean, the, so one thing I would like to say really loudly because I, I hadn't realised this, but some people think that I'm paid for every media appearance that I do. Every time they see me on TV or every time they've heard me on the radio, they think I get paid. And the answer is no, I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing this in the evenings, in my spare time, you know, and I don't get paid for it. So, um, you know, there are some things I get paid for, um, like, you know, potentially if I if I give a talk for a big organisation, they might pay me for my time. But, you know, not so, yes. <laughs> but it's really interesting because, you know, if you look, there are people there are people now who are spreading disinformation and if you follow the money, they might either have a product they're trying to sell or, you know, they're being, there's a PR company behind them. So somebody is trying to make money somewhere. Um, and you sort of have to be aware of that. You know, I, I've heard the moment of a, of a, a person who looks like they have a really incredible CV, you know, places they've worked, um, calling themselves a vaccine expert, you know, saying awful things about vaccines, which, I, again, I don't, don't kind of understand as a vaccine expert how you can say, you know, vaccines are not safe. But then if you look a bit deeper, it turns out that they might have an alternative vaccine that they're trying to develop. So, you know, it's it's all, I mean, it's very murky, and I think you have to look into what, you know, what are people's agendas? Are they, do they have an ulterior motive that you might not be aware of? But what what has been amazing though? So um, you know, any money that I do make from whether it's talks or things, um, uh, all goes towards my lab. So um, often if I do something, you know, I, if somebody says, "Can I pay you?" I'll say, "Well, you could make a donation to my lab because it's my research that I really want to fund, yeah. <laughs> not my <laughs> lifestyle." So yeah, so that's that's something I really appreciate when people um, donate money because that goes directly to my students, and then that means we can actually afford to do our experiments and stuff. So they, yeah, that. If I get any money, that's basically what it gets spent on. Because <laughs> I guess one of the consequences of you becoming like almost a face of COVID in New Zealand is that what you've actually been working on, which is the bioluminescence lab, it kind of gets forget forgotten 
So now's the chance to give people a bit of an understanding as to what you do outside of the COVID-19 sphere and what your bioluminescence lab is involved with. Sure. So I'm a university lecturer, so that means that I, I have a, you know, I teach undergraduates and postgraduate students and things in infectious diseases. But my research lab, um, gosh, I mean, I've got lots of projects on because I'm interested in lots of things, but the two main ones are, so trying to discover new antibiotics because, so while we're in a pandemic, we also have this incredible, uh, you know, health crisis uh, right on our doorstep, which is that we are running out of antibiotics. So, um, you know, these are amazing drugs that kill bacteria, um, and we're basically very close to. I mean, we have some bacterial strains that are now almost untreatable. So, if you end up with an infection, there isn't very much that can be done for you, and, and that's that's really frightening. So that so yeah. So my lab is basically trying to find new antibiotics, and we've got this really cool collaboration with Manaki Fenua, who are one of our Crown Research Institutes. And um, so they have a massive collection of fungi, uh, and we are basically trying to see if we can find antibiotics from those fungi. Um, and the the idea behind it is that penicillin, which is one of the very first antibiotics ever discovered, comes from a fungus called penicillium. And so we're hopeful that because New Zealand has animals and plants and fungi found nowhere else in the world, maybe we'll have some fungi that produce antibiotics that have never been discovered before. So um, that's a really cool project. Um, and the reason we use light is because basically uh, we've engineered these bacteria to glow they only glow when they're alive, so it just gives us a really quick way of um, basically seeing are the bacteria dead or alive when we've incubated them with the fungi. Uh, yeah, so that's a really cool project, um, but as a, <laughs> it's a bit of a labour of love. <laughs> There's like <laughs> 11,000 fungi in the collection or something, and we've done about 1,000 of them. <laughs> it's a bit of a numbers game, so our using light is also about trying to kind of speed everything up, you know, so we can screen more fungi um, faster kind of thing so uh yeah we've got a couple of new compounds um that uh really are now just at the very early stages of you know can we synthesize them there's all sorts of stuff now that needs to happen with them um but we're kind of continuing our search because really we need hundreds and hundreds of novel compounds in order to get you know to have a chance of you know one or two being able to make it into actual drugs that will be given to people and then the other big project we've got um is again another labor of love that's been going on for years unfunded um which is trying to understand uh basically the evolution of bacteria so we have this bacteria that i work on that causes food poisoning in mice um and the question that i asked many years ago was um how would it evolve? So if we just allowed it to infect its host and then keep infecting hosts, how would it change over time? So I feel like now is the, I feel like now everyone would understand this, right? Because we've all seen this evolution of these new variants with the with COVID-19. Yeah. So this was a question that I asked in my lab like 10 years ago. If we allowed this bacteria to infect animals, how would it change? Would it become more deadly, less deadly? Would it become more infectious, less infectious? Um, and what we found is it became, so we had what we call, um, well, you know, there's transmission chains, right? So we've had uh, individual mice infecting individual mice. Um, uh, I will say that this is a the, the, the version of the disease that we work on is, is not a deadly one. So um, it's, uh, yeah, we don't have... Um, it's not a really horrible, horrible uh, disease um, for the mice. And so we, uh, we've we allowed this evolution to happen through 10 transmission chains and eight out of 10 chains, the, the bacteria evolved to be more infectious. And for about the last three years, we've been trying to, to get money to, to find out 
how have they changed? So what we... How do the mice cope with the changes? So it doesn't become more deadly. It just becomes more infectious. So it it basically can infect them faster, but it doesn't become more deadly. And so what we want to know is how did it change? What what are the variations in the virus, uh, sorry, in the bacteria that have made it more infectious? And unfortunately, we haven't got any money for this yet. So uh, this is... So if anybody's listening and wants to fund some infectious diseases research, here's your chance. (laughs) Yeah, and so that's the the project I'm really, really interested in, have been interested in for years. Because, again, if we can understand, you know, for for this this project, what we wanted to know was, you know, these changes are likely happening in the real world, right? So if we can understand what to look for, that will tell us whether things are essentially becoming more dangerous because they're becoming more transmissible. And that might also lead to, to different ways to tackle infectious diseases. Rather than antibiotics, we might be able to, if we know which bits of the bacteria can change to become more infectious, that might give us new ways to, to try and stop them. So, yeah, that was my sort of interest in that. Um, there are a few other projects going on, but those are the two uh two main ones, I guess. We did have a project a few years ago that we tried to get funded. So the, the story of my scientific life is trying to get lots of things funded and failing. Um, <laughs> about, about maybe two or three years ago, yeah, probably about three years ago now, we started applying for money to um, uh, to basically take sewage from around Auckland to look for antibiotic-resistant superbugs to understand, you know, what was here, how were they were spreading, where they were and stuff. Um, and had that study been funded it would have meant that when COVID hit we would have basically had sewage and all sorts of things that we could have started looking for the virus um as it is it's taken a year for that to all get set up um by ESR but it's it's interesting because it wasn't even um it wasn't even considered important enough to discuss at the funding meeting yeah it was just like that's you know I mean it's it's hard in New Zealand because we've got lots of good projects and not enough money and so Pretty much every time my projects get put at the bottom of the pile and it's a bit depressing. <laughs> so, Susie, I guess now's a good time to do a bit of a plug for your work. So where can people go to find out more about what you do and to donate? So there's a um, there's a basically a link on the university webpage. Um, it's something like Giving to Auckland and Fungi. If you if you um, Google those, you should be able to find the the website. So you can kind of make a donation straight there. Um, it's very cool at the moment. So um, uh, Mike Weston and Otis Frizzell did a, a picture of me last year um, where they called me the Queen of Science, and they kind of they made this really cool picture that's like a, a playing card um, of me. Uh, um, yeah. And they are currently um, selling those um, online. And all the money raised from that goes to um, to my lab as well, to that particular, to that evolution project. So, yeah, there are a few various ways and you can just, you know, can also get there through um, kind of my website and stuff. So just basically I'm so visible online. <laughs> as long as you have my name, you'll be able to find me. <laughs> Yes. Otherwise, yeah. just get in touch. I mean, I've had people who just, you know, we our, our fungi work is entirely funded by donations. So we have an amazing donor um, who got on board and funded us. So, you know, if you if you want to fund some science, we can find ways to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. I have to spin this back to COVID-19 <laughs> and have to say to someone on the fence about getting vaccinated, what would be one thing that you would say to them to encourage them to get vaccinated? 
I guess, you know, this is a serious disease. I mean, regardless, again, there are lots of people who are spreading information that basically says it's not serious, right? It really is serious, you know. Um, It is deadly in some people, um, even in those who actually have a mild infection. It looks like maybe a third of those will go on to develop long COVID, which is, you know, having symptoms for months and months and months. So this is not a disease you want, right? And vaccination is all about preventing you from having a serious disease. Yeah. Um, but it's not just about preventing disease in you, right? It It is also, vaccination is also about protecting those around us because the more of us that are vaccinated, the less chance there is for the virus to, to spread. Um, and, you know, we are going to have, at the moment, the vaccine is not authorised for under 16s. So that research is still going on. Those trials are still happening. And so a large proportion of our population are going to be vulnerable to that infection, right? Um, and so, and there were also other people who, for whatever health reasons, you know, it's not safe for them to have a vaccine. So if you are able to have a vaccine, you know, it's not just about protecting us, it's about protecting everyone else. And so, you know, we got through COVID-19 this far by behaving as a team. Vaccination is just the next step in this kind of teamwork, I'd say. Yeah. But no, I really, really appreciate your time. And again, I know that you're probably way too modest for this, but congrats for New Zealand of the Year. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully in a year's time, we won't even be talking about COVID. Oh, yeah. I feel, I think, I feel like by Christmas we'll have a good idea about what's happening because at least by then we'll have data on the, you know, whether it's safe for the children to be vaccinated because um, we're not going to get out of this without them being vaccinated basically. So. Well, what I understand with younger people is that my understanding is that it's mostly affects older people. So it'd be really interesting to see if we get most like older people vaccinated, whether young people are still spreading the virus. That's only what it looks like from overseas. Um, so, you know, they definitely impacted less, less likely to die, but yeah. there's, there's, you know, it, it sort of also depends, I guess, on what the proportion of underlying health um, kind of issues there are, you know, we've got we've got high rates of all sorts of things that make people vulnerable here in New Zealand. So, um, and, and you know, there's plenty of data showing that even in children and, and young adults, if you get an infection, you may well end up having you know long term consequences. And at the moment, we really only have a year of data. What really concerns me is you know whether we're going to end up in five years' time having a whole cohort of people with heart damage and various other things you know so the stuff we're not even seeing yet i don't think that may well end up you know manifesting in a few years time and, and we don't want that really we we really don't want all of you know a large number of our under 16s you know having having a long-term health impact from this so yeah well there's been a bit of talk about the long-term effects but not really like it's kind of brushed under the carpet in terms of how young people are being affected with covid and I think most people think it's an old person's disease. If you're over 70, it's something to worry about. And if you're under 70, you'll probably be all right. And mm. I guess a bit of the Kiwi, like she'll be right mentality coming through. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And I, I just think, you know, again, when you've got, so even when something is rare, when you've got hundreds of thousands of people impacted, those rare things are still going to be a large number of people. So um, we're on the right track. And I just, I just think, Maybe, you know, everybody thinking, oh, you know, within a few months' time we'll just be opening up. I think that's not, the data's not quite there yet as to whether that's going to be safe for us. And what we're really reliant on is other countries doing the right thing and also bringing, you know, bringing rates down. And at the moment, lots, there's several countries that are relying on vaccination alone and the modelling shows that's not going to be enough. 
So yeah, as I say, by Christmas, hopefully we'll have a bit better of an idea because we'll, we'll, the vaccine will have been rolled out in lots of places. We'll have an understanding of what community transmission is like in other places. But we have to be remember that there's going to be there's a lot of the world that's not even going to have access to vaccines in the next year because of all sorts of you know patent issues that mean that vaccines are being locked away and kept for rich countries and that's that's a really serious problem because that's also where you end up having more evolution happening you know more variants that potentially might evade the vaccines or make you know not work as well and that's that's a worry so yeah. Not, we're definitely not out of the woods yet. Again, Susie, thanks heaps for your time. I don't want to take any more of your time. You probably want to, want to actually get to bed. Appreciate it heaps. Thanks again for your time and hope everything goes well. I guess everyone thinks about the coronavirus side of things, but I hope your bioluminescence lab continues to go well. And hopefully a few people listening will actually donate to your lab because that is actually, it's, it's quite easy to think about viruses and stuff, but antibiotic resistance is something that could be a very serious, serious issue. Yeah. All the infections that we just sort of brush off because we get a, some antibiotics from, from our doctor and think that everything's fine. You've got to take yeah, that seriously too. So. No. <laughs> yeah, so please do visit Tuesday's lab and take it seriously because that's another thing to, to really consider. That was 2021 New Zealander of the Year, Susie Wiles. Please do listen to the experts, take Susie's advice, and get vaccinated for COVID-19 when your time comes. One last plug Susie wanted was to share her book, Antibiotic Resistance, The End of Modern Medicine. Thanks for listening to our show. Pod Defend New Zealand is still pretty new, so please do share it with your friends and subscribe for more episodes. We're currently releasing monthly, but depending on popularity, we might um, end up going fortnightly. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. You can find us on Twitter at NZ underscore pod or Instagram at NZ underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us five stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.